Each week of Advent, we'll be looking at a different passage from the prophet Isaiah, which foretold of the coming Messiah, the coming Christ. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Good morning, Christ community. My name is Pat. I currently serve as one of four elders here at the church, and it is, as always, a real privilege to speak to you from God's word. And also, as Michael has said, happy Advent. Uh, Depending on what faith tradition you grew up in, Advent may be exciting, it may be foreign, or possibly even boring, but I hope that changes today. Uh, The word Advent means arrival. In particular, when the Christian church refers to Advent, we mean the Advent of Christ or the arrival of Christ. Jesus, the very Son of God, was born a bit over 2,000 years ago to a virgin woman named Mary. And all of history has been pointing to the arrival of this child. And after 33 years of life and ministry proclaiming the good news of the Word of God, Jesus was crucified. He died and he was buried. And three days later, the grave where he was laid was found empty, and the scriptures tell us that he was raised from the dead. And after seeing some 500 people, Jesus, the resurrected Son of God, ascended into heaven to take his rightful place with God the Father on the throne as king over all creation. And now, we his people await a second advent. And the Advent season is set aside in the church with great anticipation and longing. It's the longing for Christ to arrive again where he will usher in his kingdom, where he will wipe away every tear, where sin and death will be no more. And truthfully, I cannot wait for that day. But that day is not yet. This morning, we're looking at the comfort of God in our first of four Advent sermons called Coming to Comfort. And I'll be honest, you know, this passage was rather providential for me this week. I've had an uncharacteristically difficult and emotional couple of weeks, 
And I've cried a lot. I don't cry a lot. And it's not my intention to turn this into my own personal therapy session. I'd have to, you know, get charged. But these past two weeks have been one thing after another, after another, after another, that has felt so incredibly heavy and sad and grief-producing that I find myself teetering on some sort of cliff of depression and hopelessness. For the first time in my life, if you can relate, and I really mean that, the first time in my life, I've been dealing with real anger toward God. The kind of fist-pounding anger that implies, why can't you just say yes to the things that I pray for? Why do you continue to seemingly say no and allow people that I care about to suffer and struggle and lose and fail? I exert effort to care. I pray for what seems like really good things, and the response of God seems to be no, or even at times more maddening, just be patient. I've sat with friends who struggle to feel near to God, friends who feel beaten down by sin, friends who have broken families that seem beyond repair, friends who face grief and loss that persists, disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And as I was preparing for today, I came across this quote by Ray Ortland Jr., and I'll have it up on the screen. He says this, When we see how far we have fallen and how broken the world is, it explains something. It explains why disappointment pervades our experience. And we see more of life, we are confronted with disappointment so persistently and so convincingly that hope starts to look just plain stupid. We become disappointed in our ideals, disappointed in romance, disappointed in our careers, disappointed in the people we trust, disappointed in ourselves. And when all human hopes have let us down, we might be ready for the only real salvation that exists. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. When all human hopes have let us down, we might be ready for the only real salvation that exists. So where are we this morning? Well, we're in exile. And you may be thinking, no, Pat, we're in this beautifully decorated Christmasified church in Urbana. And you're right, but in Isaiah chapter 40, God's people are in Babylonian exile. And one of the supposedly good kings in David's line, King Hezekiah, didn't live up to God's call on his life. He did not lead God's people ultimately well, and over time, God's people, as is consistent with the storyline of the Bible, reject God. They stray from him, and by around 580 BC, the Babylonian army comes and invades Jerusalem and takes them captive. And we are to understand that this is some, sort, some form of discipline on God's people. And we could say a whole lot more about that, but the point is that when Isaiah pens chapter 40, God's people are at utter loss. And if you look ahead in the chapter, you get the sense that they feel abandoned by him, that he has failed them. So when I say you and I are in exile, here's what I mean. We live in this crazy in-between time where we are no longer in the Garden of Eden without sin, no longer in perfect communion with God, but we are also not yet in the new heavens and the new earth. And everything in between the garden and heaven is filled with disappointment with suffering, with grief, with sadness, with dismay. And some of it's brought on by our own sin, and some of it finds us as victims to the fallen world around us. And what do we do when we realize that? Or what do we do when we come face to face 
with that reality? Well, a lot of people, when they come face to face with that, when they're at their wit's end, can tend to blame God. And of course we do. I mean, he's the one who didn't act. He's the one who doesn't intercede. He's the one who just watches us as we struggle. He's the one who doesn't see our hurting and doesn't actually help us. Or does he? Or does he? See, this morning's passage is the prophet Isaiah speaking a message of comfort to the captives, a message of comfort to those who can feel as though God had abandoned them. It's a message of comfort to those who are experiencing the real consequences of their own sin and the sin of a fallen world and the discipline of the Lord feeling like exiles. It's a message of comfort for those waiting for the Lord to come and set things right. But let me say this. Today's passage is as Christmas as it gets. The invitation this morning is to come to comfort because Christ is coming to comfort us. Let me pray for us again, and then we'll begin looking at the passage together. Father, I do ask that you would bring comfort to us. As we look at these words from Isaiah, as we see what you have accomplished in Christ, as we celebrate the Advent season this morning, as we look that you are a God who comes to comfort, would you meet us in your word? Would you teach us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look at the prophet Isaiah speaking to God's people and walk through this section briefly. In verse 1 it says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's, the Lord's hand double for her sin. Comfort my people. See, when God looks down on his people, a people that are far from their homeland, Check. Yes. Far from rest. When God's people, they have no sense of nearness to God. What does he instruct the prophet to say? Comfort my people. Now take notice of the description here. My people, your God. This is God identifying with them. Though they feel abandoned, he says, I am your God and you are my people. And God speaks tenderly to them with compassion. So verse 2 is basically God saying, you've suffered a lot. You've endured so much and the time is coming for this to end. Your sins are forgiven and the war is over. And we just sang in the song a few minutes ago the line, in the darkness we were waiting without hope, without light, till from heaven you came running, there was mercy in your eyes. See, that's the picture Isaiah paints here of God. I see you in your suffering, in your affliction, and tenderly I say to you, the war is over. I'm coming with mercy in my eyes to deliver you and to bring you comfort. I mean, that's good news for them. But what will it look like? Look at verses 3 through 5. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. And every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The summary of verse 3 
of these three verses is this. God is coming. Prepare for him. But how and where? Where should these desperate people of God prepare a way for him? According to this, it's in the wilderness. It's in the desert. And here's a big point about the nature of God. He isn't waiting for us to come to him. He comes to us. And he comes to us in the desolate, barren desert. Now, this isn't a place. This isn't inherently painting to a geographical desert wilderness location where the people of God should set up a runway for his arrival. The picture here is for God's people in an exile that there is hope that their bondage and their suffering would not last forever. At some point in their future, God would come with radiant glory to meet them in their suffering, and the entire world at that point would be changed forever. See, the comfort of the Lord here is found when the glory of the Lord is revealed and the entire world is transformed. Prepare the way for the coming of the king, for when he comes, his radiant glory will change everything. And just to put an exclamation point on this point, he writes, For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There is certainty here. Prepare the way, because the certain return of your king is coming. But there's another cry. There's another cry to people in desperation, these people who fear that God has forsaken them. There's a cry that almost reads like a warning. It reads this in verse 6. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Someone here in this room, and I can't remember who, brought this very beautiful bouquet of flowers to Pam the other day. Uh, And we were grateful for them. They sat on our counter, and they were beautiful for several days until one day my wife went and lifted one of these flowers to put some water into the vase, and the top of the flower fell off in her hand and kind of started wilting. It fell apart. And I hope you get what these verses are saying. See, God's people, in absolute desperation, are disillusioned and hopeless, and God compares them to grass that withers and flowers that fade and fall apart. Here's the point. See, when they and when you find yourself in a helpless, disappointed, downcast, wretched, and hopeless situation, you shouldn't look to yourself to get out of it. It's futile. You're a blade of grass that withers and a flower that fades. And we have to see this. Our best laid plans will always leave room for sadness and for disappointment. In a world of brokenness, we are simply not able to become unbroken. But, oh, man, do we try. The the self-help book section, even at the Christian bookstores, has a ton of New York Times bestsellers that this world would love to swallow up. And you might be able to crawl out of the pits of your life by turning to one of those books or a new path of therapy. Or you might just totally avoid the fact that things are really, really hard sometimes by numbing out with Netflix and a glass of wine or six glasses of wine and a full season. But eventually, 
the longer you're alive, as I shared at the beginning, you're going to bump up against the inevitable fact that this world is in a constant state of decay. And our best efforts, our best efforts, will never set it right. And this is why we can resonate with God's people. See, we too are in a sort of exile. Does God actually care? Is he for me? But look at what Isaiah says to this disillusioned and faithless people. This is verse 8. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In verses 1 through 8, to the seemingly forgotten nation of Israel, God's people, tell them, he says, take comfort. Your turmoil is ended. Your sins are forgiven. Prepare the way so that I, your God and king, may come to you myself and display my glory. Do not look to yourselves to overcome, but instead look to my word, which will stand forever. See, there's hope. We will fade. We will fail. But the word of God will stand forever. In other words, coming to comfort for us is not dependent on us as it wasn't dependent on them. Their comfort is dependent on God. He is the one who comes to bring them comfort. And what is the word of God in this case that will stand forever? Well, in this case, Isaiah intends the promise in verse 5. And that promise said, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. See, comfort will come as the glory of God is revealed to all of the earth. So the people of God were waiting for the glory of God to be revealed, and then salvation would come. But how? How would God actually provide this comfort? If his people were told to prepare the way for his coming, then when was he coming? When was he going to put things right? If you're in exile, talk is cheap. Let's look at a few verses from the book of Matthew. This is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 21 to 23. Familiar. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, church family, this is the arrival. This is the fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah said. This is the first advent. Look at one more verse from the book of John, chapter 1, verse 14. It says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, friends, this part never gets old. In the birth of Christ, the very Son of God, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So if we look back to Isaiah 40, how would God bring comfort to his people? How would those who had lost hope, who were disillusioned and had felt abandoned by God, how would they be comforted? How would the glory of the Lord be revealed so that all flesh may see it? When God himself took on flesh and was born in the flesh as a child. 
weak and helpless, but with us. When we talk about the incarnation, God becoming man, what we mean is that time in history when the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt with us. See, the beauty of this incarnation and God becoming like us in the flesh is that he identifies with us. In all of the disappointments, in all of the missed expectations, in the times when we are tempted to believe that the Lord has abandoned us or that he doesn't care or that he stands by idly doing nothing, in all of these things, there are two places to look. The first is to the manger. I had a friend text me yesterday to tell me that he was feeling weighed down by sin. And it's one thing for me to say to him from Isaiah, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. God will bring you comfort. But it's quite another thing to point him to the word of God that reminds us that when God saw us in our brokenness, when he saw us in our desperation, he made good on that promise in that he departed heaven and he came down to us and we saw his glory born as a child. See, Christ with us is the beginning of our comfort. And there's no more with us that God could be than actually stepping into the fallen and broken humanity that you and I experience every single day. But if comfort has come to us, then why are things still so hard? Why do we continue to experience disappointment? Why does it still sometimes feel as if the Lord is far and unconcerned and unattentive? Well, because we're not home yet. This world is not the place that it was meant to be. We know this. <laughs> this place is not the place that we ultimately belong. We weren't created for this world. We were created for the world without sin, the world without sadness, the world without hurt, the world without longing, the world without waiting for comfort. And Christ came to be with us in order that we might be with him for eternity. I won't have us turn there, but in Luke's gospel, we see John the Baptist inviting people to come and be baptized with water. And he was inviting people to turn from their sin, to turn from their own self-dependence, and instead turn to God. And during that time, John records verses from Isaiah that we just read. This is from John's gospel. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. See, those words are spoken to us as they were spoken to the people of God in exile, as they were spoken in the days that Christ walked the earth. The call to prepare the way of the Lord is a call of active repentance, which means it's a turning from self and a turning toward God. See, the intention in these verses wasn't to do a public works project to tear down mountains and pave roads. It's a radical reorienting of our lives to orient our lives toward Christ. And this happens as we acknowledge the glory of God in Jesus. So the first place that we see the glory of God revealed to us as a fulfillment of God's promise in Isaiah is in the birth of Christ. The God of the universe became humble to be born as a child to identify us, identify with us. But the second place we are to see the glory of Christ is at the cross, where the Lord of our salvation became humble even to the point of death. 
See, it was his will to be born with us, and it was his will to die to rescue us from sin, to rescue us from this world of brokenness. Now, the quote I shared from you at the beginning, the last sentence in it read this, when all human hopes have let us down, we might be ready for the only real salvation that exists. So I ask, are you ready for that salvation? Are you ready for that kind of comfort? Or are you still clamoring for lesser comforts, for lesser pleasures? And I know that I found myself clamoring for lesser sources of comfort this past week. But this world has nothing to offer us that can bring us lasting comfort. And if we try to look to things of this world, we will eventually find ourselves like the people of God in Isaiah, disillusioned with the fear that God has forsaken us or at best is unconcerned. So whether you call yourself a Christian or not, please hear this. Christianity is not just the best of many religions. It is the only source of true and lasting comfort. Why did God come here? Why was he born? This world was no more meant for him than it was for us. Why would he do that? Why would he subject himself to that kind of suffering that you and I experience in our life only then to give himself to death on the cross? The answer is this. The comfort for those who see the glory of God in Jesus is that in his great love and mercy for us, Jesus himself was forsaken by the Father so that you and I will never have to be forsaken by him. God did forsake someone, which was their fear as they were in exile. God did forsake someone and would forsake someone. God did turn his face away from someone ultimately, and that someone is Jesus. Christ, hanging on the cross, screams that God is trustworthy. He keeps his promises. The forgiveness of sin, the forgiveness of sin without which no man can be reconciled to God, See, that forgiveness comes through Christ our King, who came to be with us and give his life to purchase us back to himself. The war is over, God says to his people. Your iniquities are pardoned, God says. Yes, yes, and amen, through Christ. Now let's read the last few verses of Isaiah. In verse 9, he says this, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with the young. See, the exhortation to God's people in Isaiah is to go to the highest mountain and proclaim the good news. The Lord is coming to set the captives free. The tender shepherd will come himself to tend the sheep and will bring them near, and he will give them comfort. Church, the Lord has come. Merry Christmas. And the Lord will come again. And all of this momentary affliction that we endure will be gone in an instant when Christ returns to gather his people close to himself for eternity. In the past two weeks, as my weary heart has caused me to question the Lord, as I see pain and suffering that just makes me depressed, and I don't even want to pray because I don't want to hear an answer, when I'm tempted to run to other things and forsake the Lord, or even when I do, when I want comfort, 
I look to God. What other king leaves his throne to dwell with his people? What other king leaves his throne to come and suffer with his people? What other king carries his own cross to the hill where he will die? See, friends, this Christmas, as we see here in Isaiah, behold your God. Behold the Lord who comes with might. God has come. He is coming again to comfort you. Your God is not far. Your God has drawn near. And he has come to bring us the hope of everlasting comfort beyond this life. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that our eyes would be fixed on Christ, who is coming ultimately to bring us comfort beyond measure. I pray that that would bring comfort here as we continue to rest with you in this life. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for completing a rescue mission for our souls, for keeping your promises. pray that we would worship you this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen.